It's Dig Deep, K-E-X-E, K-B-X-E. We've been talking about kind of these, I, I want to give you guys some power here, okay? Because I heard on the one hand that the environmental review process, we've been talking about copper nickel mining. We've been talking about people who are against it, people who are for it, um, liberals versus conservatives. And on the one hand, Chuck, you talked about that if you're even beginning this environmental process, and Aaron, you said that as well, that you're in. <laughs> mm-hmm. The ultimate goal, the ultimate result of an environmental review process is a permit. Right. Right. So let's, I can see the validity on both sides of this issue, a need for jobs on the Iron Range, right? A need for clean water on the Iron Range and mm-hmm. in the state of Minnesota. Is there anything in between that or what? where are we going with mm-hmm. this issue? Is it more kind of locking heads? I, I, I think Aaron and I would agree that what we need is a, an update of the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act. We need a new process to address this. And I, I think that there's a need on, let's just call it the development side. And I would include government with this because we're still out building highways and bridges and, and very impactful things. And most of our environmental review processes are actually government-initiated reviews. There is a need, I think, to draw some very clear boundaries, which we've been reluctant to do. And let me give you an example of this. We passed, and I don't know when it was approved, when I was very, very young, the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act, which set aside certain parts of rivers that were not to ever be developed, were not to be impacted in any way. Well, there's a project in this state not too long ago where you had Michelle Bachman. So, you know, boo, hiss, all the lefties. In I, the I was audience. leaving it alone, Chuck. I no, go ahead. Anything. But I'm going to do the other side now. Joined with Betsy McCollum and Mark Dayton. Get You know what project I'm talking about? Stillwater Bridge. The Stillwater Bridge. To go to the U.S. Congress, yeah, and say, (laughs) hey, this is right in the middle of a wild and scenic river. This is an undeveloped shoreline. This is essentially like the boundary waters of, you know, the Minnesota-Wisconsin border equivalent. We're going to run a massive, big, huge bridge through here. And by the way, it's going to induce all kinds of development and have all these watershed impacts. What do you say? And Barack Obama signed the legislation. It passed Democrat-controlled legislative bodies and became law. And so you look, and if I were to say, like, what do I want to see? What, what do I think would be legislation that would move this forward? I would say we should very clearly identify areas that should have no impact. And that should be, like, the clear line. And if that means we have to go compensate people for, for takings, I mean, I'm, I'm for that. I'm into that. Like, let's, let's do that. But if there is a true, like, communal need, like us together as a people want to protect this for environmental reasons because we like it or because it's good for the health of our nation and our planet or what have you, then let's communally, let's together take that step and do it. We just are, seem completely incapable of actually holding mm-hmm. to that in any meaningful way. And the reason I brought up this example is because you have incredibly liberal politicians who are like Twin Cities, Metro, all about the environment. You can't hear them talk for 20 minutes without climate change coming out of their mouth 50 times. 
And they are joining with the most conservative of Republicans around strategies of growth and development and what I think is this recurring progress narrative. Let's build the bridge. Let's build the mine. Let's do this. So I don't know, I don't know where you go with this. I think, though, that's a hangover from uh, American history. I mean, when you're a senator or a, a representative in a district and you're trying to be the very best one of those you can be, no matter what party you are, you want a legacy. You want. You also want your community to grow because I think, and you point this out all the time, we've been kind of conditioned to believe that growth is good and stagnation is bad. And so this idea that we're building bridges and roads is still shorthand for progress, I think, politically. It's almost the only thing you can get liberals and conservatives to agree about. And as a result, it's almost the only thing that can happen. We're going to eventually build things because at least we can agree about building things being good, either either because you're creating jobs and economic prosperity for the people who do the building or because it stands as some sort of high-minded ideal for human society to build the, the things and the, the tall buildings and the long bridges and the beautiful, enormous things. I, I think there's some of that, in, in, like, in particular that Stillwater Bridge. You're, you're talking about people complaining about the crossing. You're talking about constituent services. You're talking about legacy. And those three politicians, different as they might be, all had a reason to be involved in that, you know, all had a political reason to be involved in that. And they may have been concerned about the environment or Michelle Bachman may have been concerned about the government spending in some inner level, but all were willing to put that aside for that particular situation. And I think that's, that's the problem is often political, you know, when it comes to environmental regulations, because b- the, the end result of writing the world's best environmental regulation, the most logical, scientifically backed, um, you know, fair environmental regulation is a regulation and therefore wouldn't win any votes for most candidates. Right. You know, uh, it, it is a still a regulation. Somebody will still complain about it because they're on the wrong side of the line and uh, and ultimately would always be in danger. You know, no one's going to tear down the Stillwater Bridge now. It's been built. We can complain about it and say we shouldn't do it like that again. But nobody is going to be like, oh, new, new party's in office now. They're, here come the bulldozers. We're going to tear that bridge down and put a, some ramshackle uh, thing across there because we, we, we should have never built it. But regulations aren't like that. They're always in danger. We already have seen just through rulemaking through the EPA, Obama's in office. Certain things happen. Trump's in office. He reverses those things and does things that Obama never would have done. And, and you know, if it flips back, you can count on the same thing happening again. That's the thing about a regulation. It's a sandcastle of a sort. Here's what I feel like a modern regulation would look like, though. And, and this is why I think we have to try to break out of this very, I think, <laughs> government. We've got good people at the Pollution Control Agency and we've got good people at the EPA and they will look out for our best interests. That might be true. I'm, I wouldn't call these people not good people, but I think that whatever we do has got to go beyond just relying on a system in a sense. The biggest problem with a, a mine like the, the polymet mine or the, uh, the, the twin metals mine in Ely 
is that you're trying to get at what is really the most marginal of mineral sources remaining. Copper used to be incredibly abundant in North America. I mean, you could you could walk along in places and see huge nuggets of copper just laying yeah, on native the native copper. You go to the UP of Michigan and they talk about how that's how they found copper there. Natives were using it because it was readily available. It, it just it was sitting there like mm-hmm. huge nuggets. And, and now we're digging these massive pits to get, you know, 0.2% copper. You might get like a massive truck with tons and tons and tons of, of debris in it and pull out of it, you know, half a pound mm-hmm. of copper. I mean, it, it's astounding the amount of work that comes in and getting something out. Which is also why these projects are so challenging environmentally is because there's so much more waste material. You have to displace so much earth to get fewer minerals and then you've got more waste material that has to then be dealt with properly. It can all be done, but at greater cost. Well, and here's where I think we, we switch over into a modern regulatory system. I think a lot, of, a lot of this stuff can be mitigated and can be dealt with ultimately. The problem is that it's always the taxpayer that gets stuck holding that bill. When you look at uh, copper as a commodity, copper is traded globally on a, on a global market. You are competing against Chinese workers and South African workers and you know South American copper mines and whatever anyone can pull out of the ground with, with minimum amount of environmental regulations or what have you. We should look at this as, in a sense, a deposit in the ground, a, a repository, a, uh, a safe deposit box for our mineral resources. And we should only pull them out when we can do it profitably. Why we would try to debase ourselves in order to compete on a global scale just because we have to get the price down has never made sense to me. And so what I would like to see us do is say something sophisticated along the lines of, all right, here is what the set aside has to be for the public when you go out and do this. When we look at mines, I I, I tend to believe the notion that this can be done safely. But I'm also sympathetic to the notion that there's risk involved here. And what I want to do is not have some third-party insurance company guarantee the risk. I don't want the government taxpayer to backstop it. What I would like is to see that risk cost based into it and have that be money that is essentially escrowed. Like, let's get sophisticated about this. And if that means it triples the price of our copper, it triples the price of our copper. And if that means it's not viable copper for 20 more years or 30 more years, I'm fine with that too. Let's take it out of the ground and let's do it in a way where we will, as citizens of Minnesota, have the resources to be confident that if there is a problem, if there is a mistake, we can go clean it up. We can go take care of it. We can go deal with it right now. I know I've talked about this probably on the podcast before, but I always, I'll repeat it because I, I hope more people could at least respond to this if they don't agree with it. When Mine X, whatever mine company you want to imagine or development company or anything of the sort comes to your town and says, we've discovered XYZ mineral in the hills outside your town and we want to come in and, and open a mine and jobs and and uh, tax revenue will come your way because of it, so you should be for it. What I try to emphasize is you don't realize it because it sounds like, and what a lot of people hear when people say that is, oh oh goodness, we just want a prize. We just want some kind of, a major award, if you saw the Christmas story, the leg lamp is a major award, you know? Like, we got this, I want it. I didn't have to pay for it, it came to us, so it must be good, it's a prize. But what real mining people know 
is that that process, the process of telling the public that we want to come mine this, is part of a long negotiation. You, you actually got the award. Like, God gave you yeah. the uh, the mineral. Yeah. Like, it was there for millions of years. Vic, so, like, Victor Powers said uh, <laughs> that the ore is not the handiwork of man or his genius, but is, in fact, a divine gift of providence. It's, it's exactly and, what it is. And just because... Essentially, you have the, either the technology or you have access to the mineral rights or whatever the case may be, does not mean that you are, you know, that these companies are God, you know, that they that they're bestowing something on us. It's negotiation. We're going to lose something here, and we're going to also face risks that uh, are real. And any mining person worth their salt knows that it's always about risk management. Everything is a cost. Everything is a risk. And it's gotten very sophisticated before anybody runs out and says, oh, he's, he's anti-mining. I love listening to an experienced uh, miner or an experienced mining engineer. My great-grandfather was a mining engineer. Them talk about the science of this process. I think it's amazing how they do this. And I've talked to scientists working on ways to reduce the risk. It's really cool stuff. But it doesn't change the equation that when the mine is making that proposal, it's a negotiation. And if you're not negotiating, you're giving away something. If you're not negotiating for what Chuck just talked about, for instance, the the in, in, um, financial assurances. Now, you hear about financial assurances with polymet and twin metals. The problem with a lot of these proposals is that they are tied to the, the permit and they're tied to the company specifically and time fixed. That's the antiquated part that comes yeah. from the 70s. Right. The problem that we've run into, and, and it's the same problem that on, on the labor side of the equation, when a company goes bankrupt and all the pensions go belly up or it gets sold off or underfunded or whatever, uh, that happened in a number of mines locally, but National Steel most famously and recently. If you sell the company or if it goes bankrupt and gets picked up by some other developer, what is their responsibility how much are they going to be held responsible for the promises that those initial developers made all those years ago? And and I think it's kind of foolish to just assume that the developer's word is gold, even if we know these people and like these people, even if they mean it. I, I, it think, we, I think we actually have a, a fiduciary responsibility to assume it's not. Yeah. And, and even if it doesn't come down to their word, I think, you know, the best of intentions, Right. as I try to focus on in the first segment, I don't think there's any engineer who has devilish plans, but yet mm -hmm. we get down this path and we're talking about dropping, you know, atomic weapons on the Rocky Mountains to level them so we can build a highway. Mm -hmm. It's the singular focus. And I think as public bodies, we're stuck with this regulatory process that has us negotiating in antiquated ways. We really should be as stewards of the public. The art of the deal. We should be making a better deal for the yeah. for the public. Yeah, I think that's an interesting twist on that there. But uh, <laughs> but I I'll agree with it because we are making a deal. And the other thing, I just I have been around development projects, both mining and non mining development projects. And Chuck, you probably have seen plenty of this too. There are these things called job estimates. We're going to estimate how many jobs XYZ thing is going to make. There are so many ways to game these numbers, and they're so often inaccurate. They're almost never actually accurate. The only thing, and this goes to the whole environmental process, they are put together as a mechanism to get the permit. They're not like a benchmark you have to hit. There's no clawbacks if you don't. Right. There's none. It's just like... 
what do I need to, what can I say that is reasonably plausible that will get me the permit? Mm-hmm. There, there are steel mills in China right now that can turn ore and materials into steel with just a few dozen employees. Automation, industrial automation is coming. And it's just, I think, kind of foolish to think that we're going to have some huge copper industry, even if these mines go. And I'm not saying that's a reason not to do them, but I am saying that I think there's a lot of unreasonable expectations in the political realm. And then when we say things like, let's do a better environmental process or let's really get at politically, you know, whether or not these mines are a good idea right now. And then the argument is, you know, have you been to Ely? You know that Ely needs jobs. A true statement. Hoyt Lakes hasn't been the same since LTV closed. A true statement. And it's, in fact, quite economically scary for people in those areas. And so that fear is warranted. But I I just feel it's exploitive, I think, to make this all about a number of jobs and, and to, to set aside all the other concerns. I mean, 50 years from now, how valuable is the water going to be? Even if whatever you think about climate change, you can at least recognize that all around the world, we're running out of, cities are running out of good sources for water, especially in, as we build them in deserts and un, un, inhospitable climates. As in the United States, all these people going to the Southwest and and to other places where there's not enough fresh water, not enough electricity to run the cities. And as we think about this, like, are we really, is the commodity we should be thinking and planning for really these low dis, low disbursements of copper, nickel, and palladium? The, is that really what the best thing for us? To- this was always my uh, my my critique of Governor Dayton was the the simplistic. The, the overly simplistic, I think, 1960s mentality about, you know, good union jobs doing good union labor. I'm all for unions. I'm all for union jobs. And I think, you know, union people doing good union labor is, is fantastic. But the idea that we can in this rote way, the way that our environmental rules are set up, the way that our capital rules are set up, the way that we're going to go through a bonding session and give out money here and there to create, you know, local jobs and this very kind of coarse, unproductive, you know, unsophisticated way. um, I just think it's time to modernize these systems. And we can start with the environmental regulations. and, And I think ultimately get bipartisan consensus that we can change these things. As I sit here, I agree. And I think that's a good thing. I think when the rubber hits the road, you and I know that there will be hangups. There will be hangups in... But you said something. Mm-hmm. You, you said something that I think is true. You said the older established politicians, when I brought up Dayton mm-hmm. and McCollum yeah. and all that. I, I do think that one of the... I'm a Gen Xer. We just sit back and watch the world burn, right? Yeah, like we're, we're not... We're just going to get passed over. I do think one of the exciting things about millennials, if I can throw a, a bone to that demographic in our audience, is that I don't think they're married to the process outlined in the 1970s environmental legislation. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that is a sign of hope. And, and just culturally, you can see the differences in the difference just the buying trends and and commercial trends of moving towards experiential living rather than uh, materialistic living. I think that people are actually living their lives less materialistically as you get into the millennial generation. Of course, the the boomers and to a lesser extent, Xers 
are still kind of wedded to our tchotchkes and, and Hummels. Um, I don't have Hummels personally, but I, I'm just saying um, I got a lot of blue plates I'm going to inherit someday. But I, I, oh, that's too personal. I probably shouldn't have said that. But as we move out of that generation into... Um, into more bankrupt, poor, well, poor asset-less generation. Yeah, the asset-less uh, generation. That's we will, part of the uh, reason. Part of that, though, is I know a lot of millennials, um, younger side millennials, who believe that you know, rather than acquiring a, a bigger house or the the kind of the American dream vision that I think a lot of us grew up with, who are a little bit older than that, the idea of actually spending your money on an experience, learning how to do something, practicing a craft or a hobby or a, a recreational sport or travel, travel's a big one, and having these experiential things is kind of the value. And if you think of experience as the value, I think you can apply that to government, government as well, and we can start maybe talking about changing the pattern of consuming and growth and, and maybe look at some other ideas, whatever those might be. Well, I hope we get a, f- a lot of feedback on this. This is something people... Ah, no one cares. Really? No, there'll be Let's huge... Send it to <laughs> Chuck. We're going to send it directly to Chuck. Yeah. We'll give you his mailing address I always where w- he lives. Yeah, and I always wonder how much people care uh, outside of the communities most affected or the environmental kind of subgroups that are really focused on the issue. How does it play like in a small town in another part of the state? Do they think of it at all? I, don't I, I think it's one of those things where it's broad but not deep. Yeah, but the broad leans all in one way. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's nobody who is like, yeah, trash the water, mm-hmm. you know, so that I can have my cell phone be thirty cents cheaper. Like, no, no one, no <laughs> one would make that trade off. But right. yet, you know, I, I think there's also uh, some other cultural things in in the yeah. way. Yeah, and the way that interacts with the politics. I think. Let's talk point. politics. I can't wait to talk about let's in the extra talk about yeah. Iowa because that that was so much fun. Did they figure it out yet? I don't think okay. they officially well, know who won, but yeah, I think Chuck is being a little. I think he's having a little fun with the Democrats. I don't know. Uh, he is uh, through yeah. the whole thing. I send us an email, comments I just at kexe.org. I can't a, wait for my app to run my health. He's system. got a Cheshire oh, cat grin for those I listening. Know. <laughs>